we have around about 14% of the over 75 population choosing to live in a retirement village. And that number has increased from 9% five or six years ago to 14% today. So not only has the numbers of 75-year-olds in the population as a whole increased, um, our market share, if you like, has increased at an even faster rate. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today's guest is John Collins. John is the Executive Director at New Zealand's Retirement Villages Association, which represents the interests of owners, developers, and operators of retirement villages throughout New Zealand. In this position, John represents the association and its members to policymakers and the media, so he's the perfect person to explain why retirement villages in New Zealand keep going from strength to strength. We also talk a lot about the continuum of care in this episode, as well as some recent policy proposals that might have some knock-on effects for the industry. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Collins. Okay, John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure entirely. You're quite well positioned in the, the landscape of aged care within New Zealand. To give us kind of a picture of the challenges and opportunities that are going on within the aged care sector, could you give us sort of a broad overview of what's happening? Ash, just before we get too carried away, yeah, yeah. aged care and retirement villages are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you think of it as aged care as a continuum for older people, at my end of it, the retirement village end, our residents are active, older, independent people, people who can live independently in their own homes in the community or in a retirement village. And then as care is needed, then they move to either a care facility, which is often co-located in the same village, or they move to a, a hospital facility or something, which will be uh, off-site. But my residents are the active independent into uh, the business. Mm-hmm. It's great to make that distinction first up. Can you tell us about then how, how you see retirement villages fit into the landscape of, of services for older adults? Okay, very good question. Uh, Retirement villages were originally created uh, over 60 years ago by a number of church and not-for-profit organisations, basically in Auckland, for older people to house older people in surroundings, which was warm and age-appropriate and comfortable. Over time, that particular model became adapted by commercial operators who understood the need to provide age-appropriate housing in terms of size, accessibility, warmth, insulation, uh, community, access to amenities like swimming pools or um, bowling greens, libraries, cinemas, that sort of thing. Um, And therefore, we're able to develop a model which allowed the resident to pay a capital sum, lived in the village for as long as they want to, or able to, when they died or went into care, their unit was um, refurbished and re-licensed and a new resident moved in and the old resident was paid out a contracted amount in relation 
relation to how much they'd originally paid. So that particular model then basically got underway in the late 80s, I suppose. And over the next 20 or so years, it was refined to the license to occupy model, which we enjoy today. So we have around about 14% of the over 75 population choosing to live in a retirement village. And that number has increased from 9% five or six years ago to 14% today. So not only has the numbers of 75-year-olds in the population as a whole increased, our numbers of um, our market share, if you like, has increased at an even faster rate. So 100 people move in roughly every week. So quite clearly, the industry is doing something doing something right. Yeah, and just to clarify there, that's 14% of all over 75s in New Zealand are living in a retirement village community. That's correct, around about 45,000 people. Wow, that's incredibly fast growing. What do you attribute this this high growth rate to? Several things. Um, we know that when residents move in, they're looking for financial security. They're sick and tired of repairing their own place. They're sick of, maybe they've suffered earthquake damage. Maybe they've got a leaky building problem. Oh, they're just sick and tired of painting the fence. And they want to move somewhere where all those problems of ownership are taken away from them. And they get to live somewhere warm and comfortable with friends, enough money to live on and a pathway to care. That's the first reason. The second reason, I guess, is that operators are themselves improving the offering all the time. So every new year comes, the not only are the buildings better, but also the operators understand what causes residents' concerns and are moving to ease those problems. So, for example, we know residents get very worried about costs escalating out of their control. In Wellington City, just right now, Wellington City Council talking about a 17% rate increase, which if you're on a fixed mm. income, that's a huge amount of money. So in a retirement village, operators will often fix the weekly fees, which covers things like rates and insurance and um, all those sort of overhead costs. So they fix the weekly fees. So the inflationary issues around for residents are taken away. And that we uh, people are finding is a hugely attractive thing. You know, almost the last dollar, how much you're going to pay today, how much you're going to pay in two years' time, and how much you're going to get back when you leave the village. And those that sort of sense of financial security is incredibly important for our residents. Yeah, and if uh, if my knowledge is correct here, that's something that's lacking in the Australian system that we don't have a, a guaranteed uh, sort of a. a a price guarantee there mm. that it can it can be adjusted as costs go up and down. Exactly. Why is it the case that it's that the New Zealand system is able to do that? Um, the way the New Zealand system works is that when the resident pays the capital sum, they move into the village, uh, they live in the village, and when they leave, the deferred management fee, which is the bit the operator keeps, is usually between twenty and thirty percent of the original capital sum, is deducted from the ingoing price and then they refurbish the unit the next resident pays in, and they pay a capital sum and from that capital sum the first resident's contracted amount is repaid so if they've paid say $400,000 they might get $300,000 back and the operator retains 25% and you can see that that sort of going forward into the future in Australia the thing is different the the deferred management fee comes off the sale price the new resident has paid. So the outgoing resident gets a share of any um, capital gain, if you like. That means that the operator doesn't have the resources available, at least not as much resource available, to maintain the village at the highest possible level, to build new things, to make sure that buildings are weathertight, and all those sorts of things which which go with ownership. Uh, so the resident doesn't have to worry about those things 
the operator has the costs of ownership and the resident is insulated from that. And that's the principal difference between the two systems, between New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point there, that in the Australian system, a resident may be exposed to, to a greater possibility of uh, of reward at the sale of the unit, but the cost is the possible downside there and the lack of stability that, that comes as a result. Yes, you're perfectly correct. A very, very simple example. In this country, one of our listed companies has spent tens of millions of dollars on watertight uh, leaky buildings remediation. Mm. None of that costs the resident a cent, not one cent. In Australia, where the residents get to sh- share the capital gain, they'd also be liable for, for those sorts of external costs. And residents would suddenly discover themselves with an unpleasant surprise with a bill for several tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to re- remediate things because they are responsible for the, the ongoing maintenance of the, bil- of the buildings. What are the circumstances that, that allowed these differences to flourish? And do you see a way that in Australia that the uptake of, of retirement villages could be raised? Do you see there's any way that could be turned around? We have got two or three New Zealand operators who have gone over to Australia, Ryman Healthcare in particular, for example, mm-hmm. and they've taken with them their New Zealand model, which is, which is a market-leading model, it's got to be said. And they have built and opened three villages, I think, in Melbourne. And in every case, the sale down based on the New Zealand model for Australians who were very, very anxious to uh, utilise that model has been outstanding. Um, And in strong contrast, possibly with the Australian developers who've stuck with their traditional model, the lure of sharing capital gain without realising the downside of the uh, capital cost is often not quite so obvious perhaps in the on the good days when the market's performing well. Right, so perhaps it's not so much a, a change in the structure or anything, but it will just take a few a few more providers to come from New Zealand or who at least have that approach to bring it to the Australian market. Well, we, we, we remain optimistic that the Australian market will actually see and observe and hopefully copy the uh, examples which we've got. But, you know, at the end of the day, each each industry, each country has its own population, its own market demographics, its own market expectations, and every operator who's successful understands those expectations, markets to them and provides a service which matches those expectations. Mm. Now, given the success of retirement villages in in New Zealand, it's uh, interesting to see that New Zealand government is proposing a review of legislation relating to retirement villages. What's the legislation about and, and what's the feeling amongst providers about this? That's a huge question. <laughs> the review of the legislation which the Commission proposes is is a bit, bit misguided because the Commission has confused the Consumer Protection Legislation and the Retirement Villages Act, uh, the regulations, the Code of Practice, with all the various commercial terms which operators use in their contracts to distinguish their village from their competitors. So if you like, on the one hand, the regulations say the village has to be registered with the Registrar of Retirement Villages, a memorial is placed on the title of the land so that residents' interests are protected ahead of all the creditors. A statutory supervisor is appointed to make sure the village is being run in a financially prudent manner and is, is there to protect the residents' interests. There's a complaints and disputes resolution scheme and uh, there's a requirement for mandatory legal advice. That's common for all villages and every resident understands that and that's their protection. And that's the, the that's the regulation which the 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 uh, regulators 
think needs to be reviewed. We don't think it does. We think that's world leading. In fact, we've got comments from both Australian and British uh, organisations to say that our legislation is world leading. On the other hand, we've got a whole suite of issues where residents are have varying levels of grievance about not sharing capital gain, for example, uh, slow resale times or relicensing times, the treatment of weekly fees, either when the resident is living in the village or after they leave, dealings with uh, repairs and maintenance of chattels, for example. Those are issues which relate which relate to the commercial terms. And we, we, we've, we've said to the Commission, look, we understand that there are problems with some of these issues. We believe that we can sit down and work with you and the Residents Association to be able to resolve the issues or at least find some, some way through some best practice examples or whatever it might be. But we've said you should not try and regulate the commercial terms because you will instantly disadvantage people and reduce the choice available to, to uh, new residents coming in. So that's the balance which we've got. And our submission, which we're just finishing off now, basically tries to emphasize that point. And then it goes through each of the various points in turn, like mandatory buybacks or the sharing of gain on market resale and that sort of thing, to point out where the problems are in each one of those and what would happen if they were try to proscribe or regulate those and what the impact of that would be on villages, on operators and on residents. Mm, and I guess that's going to link nicely to the conversation in Australia at the moment following the release of the Royal Commission's final report there. The ideas of where the, the government's line ends and, you know, there is a great value that can be placed on flexibility and, mm. and fluidity within services that can be offered to, to residents and their families and to restrict them by legislation can have knock-on effects that are undesirable. We often see uh, you know, the different Australian states grappling with this particular problem and we know, we can see that the answer is, the simple answer is to put it, you know, be more pres- prescriptive of what you can and can't do. And we think that the, the easy answer is seldom the right one. What our regime is, we've got a sort of framework, if you like, of, of what people can do and it's, the whole thing is based on disclosure. So operators and residents' lawyers explain to the incoming resident what the what the uh, parameters of the village are about. In other words, how much they're going to pay, how much they're going to get back, all those sorts of things. It's full and transparent disclosure. So a resident can firstly choose what the sort of village they want. Secondly, basically choose to some extent the terms which they want to live by and will know on know the last dollar, how much they're going to get when they when they leave. And that's all about disclosure. And whereas the Australian regime seems to be much more prescriptive and you say you've got to do this, you can't do that. And therein lies the the problem, which we, we want to avoid that. Is the assumption here that there's been a problem with the disclosure process or something that some people have entered into agreements that they feel have been unfavourable? Mm. Why do you think the case that the government is proposing changes? I think really what's happened is that the last 10 years in New Zealand has seen unprecedented capital growth in the property market and residents are seeing that reflected in the prices charged by operators and they feel aggrieved that they aren't getting a share of that. Mm. You know, looking from their perspective, they paid a significant capital sum, often hundreds if not millions of uh, dollars um, over to the operator and they see the operator uh, then getting, you know, another half million on top of what they paid later on. And they, they feel that that's unfair. They want to have a share of that. As I've explained, there are reasons why that doesn't work. And I think that's what's been driving a lot of it. And 
what we haven't done as an industry very well, in my view, is explaining to the residents the downside risks, which I've explained to you. Mm -hmm. And if you say to them, look, what do you want? Financial certainty and no risk, or do you want to have the possibility of a profit, but also the almost certainty of a loss and, and unexpected costs? And the residents we know say, look, we want the financial certainty you wear the costs. That's not our problem. It's your village. You've built it. You look after it properly. We'll just live in it and we'll get the benefits from it. And, you know, if we were to explain that effectively to residents, hopefully they will see the, see where we're coming from and the clamour for um, sharing capital gain will, will die away a bit. Yeah, that, 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 that I think is the answer in a nutshell, really. This episode is sponsored by NNT. NNT understands that a uniform is more than just the clothes you wear. They're committed to providing distinctive uniforms that empower healthcare professionals to perform at their best. Having dressed healthcare workers since 1962, they continue to evolve and innovate their designs and fabrics. NNT balances functionality with style and comfort to produce high-performing uniforms to help support you every day. NNT is part of Workwear Group, a West Farmers company, and they're offering listeners of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast an exclusive discount of 10% off site-wide using the promo code NNT10. That's double N-T-1-0 for 10% off site-wide at nnt.com.au. Offer ends 30th of June, 2021. Terms and conditions apply. Now, changing direction a bit and circling back to what we mentioned at the start about the continuum of care and that retirement villages can play a role in that, I imagine that the landscape of this continuum is going to be shaped a lot by COVID and and the need to adapt to that new change. How have you seen this change through the coming year? In the, in the past year. <laughs> in the past year, yes, okay. Well, this time last year, almost exactly, New Zealand went into level four lockdown. Uh, and of course, we were locked down, I think, for six weeks at level four or whatever it was. And that included all retirement villages. So the first thing which we did as um, the aged care side of the business are used to the concept of managing infectious diseases. So the mm-hmm. concept of a lockdown was not that unusual for the aged care side of the business. But of course, a lockdown for something like... Um, you know, tummy bug is a matter of a few days rather than months. So the scale of this particular lockdown was far greater. And as a result, the pressure on older people was also that much more acute. So villagers worked very hard to make sure the residents were kept occupied, they were kept happy, their mental health was looked after, but also their physical health was kept after by having guards at the gates and only essential workers coming in and all that sort of stuff. And and over time, people sort of came to accept how that worked. There's an association we put a lot of time out about issuing instructions to uh, our members on what they should do and how they should do it and how resident and instructions to residents and their families about how they should look after the lockdown. One of the first things we found afterwards is that uh, we were very fortunate in that we had maybe a two or three cases of COVID-19 in a village. Tragically, one person died, but they'd just come back from um, one of those uh, cruisers and he and his wife were really sick. A manager managed to contract it down south from her husband who was uh, visiting one of the um, clusters which we had down on the South Island. But apart from that, 
the industry managed the uh, COVID-19 and the retirement villages extremely well. And what we found afterwards was people who lived outside the village looked over the fence and saw our residents being happy and entertained and safe and secure, said we want a part of that. And we found that inquiries escalated dramatically. Mm. Of course, we couldn't do much about it until we moved to level two. But nonetheless, uh, there was a huge degree of interest, not only from the older people themselves, but from their families, the children living overseas, who wanted to be sure that their parents were safe. And for them, a retirement village was the absolute answer for that. So that was that. That is the is a sort of short term effect. In the longer term, uh, we will see that people view villages as safe havens. And as an industry, what we want to do is make sure that safe haven image, in fact, translates into reality. So one of the sort of things which we're looking at doing is establishing a pandemic committee, if you like, a a committee of experts uh, who can give us advice on um, not just epidemiology issues, but also on design and construction, IT, security, all those sorts of things which we can build into the design of the villages to make sure that they are, should we say, disease resistant, if you like. And that means the residents are not only seen to be safe, but are actually safe. That's one of the longer term things which we will put into place once we've got our um, response to the Retirement Commission out of the way. Do you think that inevitably there's going to be some compromises there between the feel of the village and the safety, right? Mm. And perhaps even would there be compromises with functionality? Mm. Um, For example, if you had to move off a a more high-intensity care uh, facility away from a retirement village? How do you see those compromises? I, I guess around oh, right about 70% of New Zealand villages have an aged care facility on the campus. Mm-hmm. So unlike Australia, where a minority of villages provide a genuine continuum of care, the majority of ours do and always have done. So the the first step was was to make sure that the everybody in the total complex was safe. Villages with a care component often took a stricter approach to making sure the their residents were safe because they were more vulnerable than the village resident community as a whole. But one of the key things that we said as an industry to our members, look, we don't want our residents to feel disadvantaged just because they live in a retirement village. They shouldn't have any fewer advantages or greater impositions on them than the same age cohort in the wider community. So if 75-year-olds were able to mix and mingle and go to the supermarket and do this, that and the other, then so too should our residents be able to do that. And we, we, as an association, we, we took quite a strong view on this one, but we said that, having said that, we know that if you've got an aged care facility and your village is a smaller part of their business than the aged care facility, then yes, you may need to have a higher level of lockdown or high level of restrictions, if you like, than a pure village, which a pure lifestyle village, which has no aged care. But that was that was the, that was the balance which we tried to strike with our members and residents' uh, rights during the lockdown. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. It's it's going to be a balancing act the world over to to get that combination right. And you mentioned earlier that there's there's a residence rights association in, in New Zealand as well. Uh, we have a retirement village residence association. They've been they've been around for a long time, but only in the last five years or so they've actually got much more uh, active. 
They've got a uh, very live wire president, a chap called Peter Carr, and uh, he's got a team of people with him who work hard to make sure residents' interests are advanced and their voices are heard. So at the end of last year, we realised that as an organisation, the residents' voice wasn't as well heard as it could have been. Um, so we signed a memorandum of agreement with the Residents Association, so to which sets out the way which we sort of work with each other to deal with, handle complaints and dispute problems in a way which is cooperative and friendly and respectful. We talk about how we're going to deal with the media, and there's no a no surprises policy in this one. Mm-hmm. We talk about how we might improve the training available for our managers and staff. We talked about how individual village. Uh, residence committees might be more effectively looked after so that they have a genuine mandate from the residence body as a whole to talk on their behalf. Th- those sorts of issues uh, talk about where we can resolve policy issues ourselves and reach an agreement on them, then we'll do so. If we agree to differ on something, then we'll do so respectfully and say, yes, this is this is where we're both coming from on this particular issue and leave it to somebody else to sort of reach a conclusion, if you like. But the whole point of having a minimum of an agreement was to, to make sure that we listened to each other in a way which was respectful and constructive so we didn't just shout at each other through the media mm-hmm. because we've seen how that how bad that is for everybody when people just shout at each other through through the newspapers or the radio. So doing it in a way which is more constructive, we think, is going to get a much better outcome for both parties. Yeah, great. And you you very nicely anticipated my question there about how you uh, how you would coordinate with them. And mm-hmm. and I can imagine that as legislation changes are brought up or any sort of discussion is coming up, it'd be great to present a unified front and and outline clearly which issues you're aligned on and which ones you aren't. Unfortunately, this particular white paper has actually drawn quite heavy lines down between us on some of the points. We've What we've tried to say is, look, these are the reasons for it, and maybe we haven't communicated that very well. Let's see where we can find a common ground if that's possible. Great. And now just casting an eye towards the future, how do you see the growth of retirement villages shaping in the next couple of years, or how do you see it, its place within a larger care continuum changing? Do you think it's going to continue growing, or what do you think there? Uh, the expectation is it will continue to grow. Um, the population is ageing, as it is in Australia, and we've also seen that the market share has continued has risen from 9 to 14% over seven or eight years. We don't see that changing anytime soon. And as we are able to explain the benefits of living in a village to the wider population, we will expect more people to actually buy into what we're offering because we do offer a lot of security, peace of mind, uh, all those sorts of things which eight-year-olds really want. I mean, trying to explain to somebody who's just starting out, out on the housing ladder about how sometime in the future they might not want to own a house. They might actually want to go have a different structure about where they live. It's not that easy. But when you're 80, it's a much more obvious uh, decision. And we would see that the needs of yesterday's 80-year-olds are no different today's 80-year-olds, which will be pretty similar to tomorrow's 80-year-olds. So provided we continue to do deliver on the promise, we would expect that the numbers will continue to grow. Mm. And now attracting attracting residents is one side of the coin, but how are you attracting providers into the space as well? Are there many aged care providers who aren't already in a retirement living space? 
Yeah, there are actually. There's there's quite a lot. There's the some stats I saw two or three years ago. So I'm not sure how current they are right now. I think around about seventy uh, percent of retirement villages have an aged care facility on the campus, but only forty five percent of aged care facilities have a retirement village. Mm. So there's a significant number of pure standalone aged care facilities. Now. What's going to happen with those is the $64,000 question because many of them are small, old, um, and in, in often in, in rural provincial New Zealand, and they are com- up against competing with some very, very smart, uh, very attractive facilities. Admittedly, uh, the, the attractive ones are more expensive, so there's a balance here between what, you, what you've got and what you can afford. But it's probably fair to say that there have been virtually no new standalone aged care facilities built in New Zealand which aren't part of a retirement village. And you know, put it the other way around, if you like, every new aged care facility has been part of a retirement village because the retirement village capital cross-subsidises the construction of the aged care facility. And that's quite an important point because the, the government subsidy is has been basically fixed more or less for, for a long time and it's never enough to provide the genuine cost of capital. So what we're finding now is the need for aged care residents to fund a greater portion of their care where they can. And what we're finding is the development of uh, premium care rooms and care suites and residents can either pay a weekly fee to live in a nicer room uh, with a better outlook or whatever it might be, or they purchase an occupation right agreement as they would in a retirement village over a 60 square metre care suite, Mm -hmm. for example, and as soon as they do that, then they come under the retirement villages regime because the the capital sum payment means that they are part of a retirement village and the operator in operating that particular part of the care suite is operating a retirement village and has to comply with the retirement villages legislation. So the way we see things happening, I think, in time is that we will continue to build standard subsidised rooms, which are, say, 11 to 15 square metres, but we'll also have a far greater emphasis on bigger care rooms, which can be sold either for a capital sum or at a weekly premium. Yeah, and I guess tied into all of this is this idea that it's less cut and dry. There's there's a lot of kind of uh, give and take between the different elements in this continuum. As you were describing, a different size of suite would come under retirement living uh, arrangements and, you know, other situations. It's a lot of grey areas here. Mm, it is. And, I mean, allied to all of that, of course, is we've got home ownership has been declining now for a number of years. Mm. It reached a, a peak in the 1970s with a home ownership of somewhere between 75 and 80% or something. Today, it's you know, we know that around about 30% of the over 65 population don't own a home. Home ownership is probably in the upper 60s percent across the nation as a whole these days. And if you don't have a capital sum upon which you can draw to pay for your retirement village unit or indeed your aged care, uh, then we're going to have some some issues. And one of the things which the Commission's white paper canvases is things like social housing. And I would be remiss if I didn't sort of note that we have a number of operators, particularly in the not-for-profit space, who have a missional approach to the provision of social housing for older people. And, you know, I know one, for example, has is building a brand new village in Wellington, and I think 5% of those units are going to be affordable rentals or social housing units. While we don't see the industry itself as being the 
the answer to social housing, we want to be able to be part of the housing solution by releasing family homes back into the community every time a resident moves to a village. Mm. I'm not sure that answers the question. I showed a bit sidetracked. <laughs> it's one of no, my no, favourite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great addition there. It's, that's yeah. really, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that there was a, you know, a way to give back in that sense. Mm. Uh, I wonder with this this idea of the continuum, and we've heard how retirement living and, and higher care facilities are blending, I, I guess there's going to be a move staying in your own home for longer without moving. Mm. Do you see that there is a way to blend the retirement living and people remaining in place? Yeah, it's a very good question. You're absolutely right. So we're part of that continuum. And in New Zealand, if you're assessed as needing at-home services, uh, these can be provided to you in a retirement village. Occasionally, they are provided by the retirement village operator, but more often by an external provider under contract to the local district health board. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a point of concern for us. We, we think we can do that, but that, we worry about that now, right now. Mm-hmm. But because a retirement village resident in their own units in the village can get uh, at-home care, then we would see that that being a natural uh, part of the continuum of care um, in the future. So, yeah, we, the, the government is in New Zealand is quite clearly focused that at-home care is a better option than putting into people into um, residential care. Residential care operators will have a view on that. As far as we're concerned, we are happy to assist the government in providing care for people at home if, if that's what they needed. Of course, the, the tension then comes between people, the family, wanting to keep their older person at home for as long as possible for whatever reason. But in fact, the level of care they need is so acute that they would be actually better off moving to a care facility. And that particular tension isn't going to go any way, go away, I'm afraid. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, we, we've covered a lot today and in a surprising amount of detail. It's having not been an expert on any of this. It's It's been interesting to, to kind of get a broad overview and, and to get into the nitty gritty with some of it as well. Is there anything you wanted to talk about before we leave it for today? I think probably we have covered most of it. Uh, the, the the Commission's white paper is sort of really much occupying top of mind uh, right now. So once we've got past that, we really wanted to put in place some other initiatives around the pandemic panel and, and those sorts of things, um, working with the, with the residents association on getting some industry best practice guides out to to address the concerns residents have. That's going to be our task for the foreseeable future, along with establishing a more effective training regime, which I mentioned but didn't really touch on in great detail. One of the areas where Australia is actually very, very good at this is in the training regime, and we have been looking closely at what's being provided in Australia to see what we can Kiwi-eyes over here and make use of mm-hmm. and adapt for our own uses. So that's that's going to be one of the next, uh, next challenges over the next uh, two or three years is actually making sure that our staff are not only empathetic, but are also very well trained in what they can do and make sure the residents' lives are as good as they can be. Absolutely. The number one priority. Hmm. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome, uh, Ash. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. 
See you next week.